um, you don't have to get ready yet, a, a kind of um, meditation on sound that any of you have heard me much before have probably heard me lead, but uh, anyway, it can, be, it can be kind of interesting. So I thought we'd do a meditation together first, and then, as Heather said, um, I've been working on a new book that I've been working on for a long time, but I've only recently figured out what it is that I'm writing about. Uh, but I brought a little of it uh, with me, so I thought I could just read you what's basically what I think is the opening chapter. Um, and it's a little unusual, it's a little hard to read. I don't know, we could see if it works, the, just the reading out loud of the, of the chapter. It's a, it's a little elementary, especially for a, a sophisticated uh, meditation audience, but I would appreciate the feedback and you know, see if it stimulates any thoughts or, um, or whatever. Um, and then we can, you know, if there are questions or comments or, or, um, or anything, we can, I think there'll be enough time for all of that. Um, those of you who are not so familiar with my work, um, I, I'm in the relatively unusual position of having been uh, uh, exposed to Buddhism and re really, at least um, to my mind, immersed in Buddhism before I knew very much about Western psychotherapy or certainly Western medicine or psychiatry. So um, uh, learning about Buddhism and doing a few meditation retreats uh, gave me um, enough uh, fortitude to go back and um, uh, go through the Western medical psychiatric training. <coughs> Uh, and I so and I always um, everything I learned about the Western approach to therapy I was um, filtering through uh, what was already established in me as a kind of Buddhist lens. So I've been interested along the way in how the two worlds actually complement each other and speak to each other and and often are trying to say something similar. I've been more drawn to the parallels and the similarities between psychoanalytic, psychotherapy, and Buddhist um, philosophy and Buddhist psychology. So I, I ended up writing um, a series, first of articles, and then what turned into books, which are all basically attempts at translating, I think, Buddhism into uh, the psychological language uh, that is dominant in, our, in this culture at this time, at least among therapy, therapy types. Um, so, uh, so I've written a series of books. The latest one, uh, as Heather mentioned, is going to be called The Trauma of Everyday Life, I think. Um, but, I, but I thought what I'd like to do first, I, I don't know how probably most of you know, it, it's um, coming up on the 100th anniversary of John Cage's birthday, I think. So there, there's a lot of, there are going to be a lot of concerts. I think maybe they're already starting. Uh, a lot of John Cage events happening. So in some way, this is, this is going to be like a little John Cage pre prelude. prelude. Um, to my mind, one, John Cage was one of the great Western Buddhist teachers, um, in particular a great practitioner and I think translator and transmitter of mindfulness practice. Um, I, I always like the definition of mindfulness or as um, what's sometimes called bare attention, like naked attention. And the, um, the old-time definition of bare attention is that it's the clear and single-minded awareness of what actually happens to us and in us at the successive moments of perception. 
and that's the definition that I always carry with me. Um, so it's just another way of talking about mindfulness. But the clear and single-minded awareness of what actually happens to us and in us at the successive moments of perception. And the idea is that you know, it's a different kind of meditation. This, again, is a sophisticated audience, so you know this already, but still it's sometimes helpful to get the basic clarity. It's a different kind of meditation than just a one-pointed meditation where you keep bringing your mind back to the breath or to a mantra or to a candle flame or to an idea or an image. That's part of Buddhist practice and even part of mindfulness practice, that kind of one-pointedness. But uh, mindfulness practice, eventually you open the mind up so that you are as much as possible, which is an ideal which no one really achieves, but still as much as possible you're trying to let your attention open to the flow of things and to the change of things. So to the flux of thoughts and feelings and sounds and impressions of all the senses and the mind that constitute our flow of experience. Um, and uh, as you practice in mindfulness, you find you come in and out of an ability to actually be with, uh, in, an, in an attentive way, to be with your, your uh, both sensory and mental and emotional experience. So um, I like to quote the um, old Japanese haiku, uh, an old pond, a frog jumps in, plop as um, representative of that kind of attention. The old pond is like your mind, and a frog jumping in is like a sound from outside, or a, a memory from inside, or a thought that you might have, or a feeling. Any sense impression or mental impression, and plop uh, the reverberations of whatever that uh, sensory or mental impression might be. And the, one of the defining characteristics, uh, you might say, of mindfulness is that you learn to separate out the reverberations, or we might say the reactions, to whatever is happening from the raw, core, sensory event. It, you know, and it's not that you stop all the reactions, but you know the reactions as reactions, rather than um, being uh, driven unconsciously by the reaction so that you find yourself acting, you know, in a state of um, uh, agitation, for instance, you're able to hang back a little bit and see the impulses that are arising in the, in the mind and body and to treat those impulses, those reactions, those reverberations in the pond as just another object of meditation. So that attitude of bare attention or of mindfulness. Um, there's a, uh, a quote from James Joyce that someone once read me, I have no idea where it really is, uh, about the uh, best way to look at a work of art. And he, he said that that uh, frame of mind for appreciating a work of art he called beholding, that if you pull the object too close to you, it becomes pornography but if you distance yourself too much from it, it becomes criticism. There's some kind of in-between place, which is what we're practicing um, in meditation, which he called beholding. And to uh, be able to give yourself that kind of attention in meditation so that everything that's happening, no matter how trivial, no matter how mundane, um, 
you can give it that the same kind of attention that you'd be uh, giving if it were officially a work of art. And when when I get to John Cage, which I will in a minute, uh, you know that was his uh, way of working with sound. That he was into, you know, that music mu music is everywhere. That music doesn't have to be a, such a limited, defined category, but that all sound, and in fact the silence that comes between sounds, that all of that is worth listening to and that all of that could be um, appreciated or beheld uh, as music. And that was radical at one time. It's, you know, it's no longer radical, but, uh, but it's still interesting. And the thing that um, many people know but not everyone knows about John Cage was that he in um, the early 1950s, he and a host of other New York uh, uh, arts and psychology uh, and uh, uh, writer kinds of people went to Columbia and heard lectures from a visiting Japanese Buddhist scholar D.T. Suzuki, who lectured about the um, psychology and philosophy of Zen Buddhism. And uh, Cage took what Suzuki was saying very much to heart but instead of engaging in a sitting meditation, decided that he would uh, try to implement what he had learned from Buddhism uh, uh, in, a, in his music. And that was not necessarily the beginning, but that consolidated for him this view of uh, sound, all sound as music. And um, uh, Cage was very much into cultivating the state of mind that we learn from Buddhist practice and call mindfulness. Um, it's also parenthetically really close to what Freud uh, came to in terms of uh, the kind of attention that he recommended that psychoanalysts deploy to their patients in psychotherapy. And Freud was always sort of cagey about um, speaking too directly about technique, but on several different occasions he did try to condense his method down into um, you know, a couple of phrases uh, to help the um, therapists who were struggling under him trying to figure out uh, what, uh, what Freud was actually teaching. And if you read those statements about, about technique, not knowing that it's Freud talking, they, they sound very much like a Buddhist teacher, actually, um, giving instruction in mindfulness. And I think that, uh, that Freud, through his own experimenting you know, with cocaine and so on, um, actually came to a kind of understanding about the therapeutic deployment of attention, which um, the Buddhists have always known has, is a kind of healing energy, but that uh, Freud was actually one of the first to put into practice in a two-person you know, talking kind of way. And he said things like... Um, the, uh, the job of the therapist is to suspend judgment and give impartial attention to everything there is to observe, which is a nice phrase, could be a Buddhist phrase, you know, suspend judgment, the first thing, and give impartial attention, impartial being the key word, impartial attention to everything there is to observe. Um, he, he said a few other things that are almost as good. Uh, the rule for the doctor, he said, may be expressed. He should withhold all conscious influences from his capacity to attend and give himself over completely to his unconscious memory. 
or to put it purely in terms of technique, he should simply listen and not bother about whether he's keeping anything in mind. So that idea of simply listening and not bothering about whether he's keeping anything in mind is actually what therapists do. Um, and uh, it's what we also try to do when we meditate. You know, simply listen and not bother about keeping anything in mind. It's hard to do because your mind wants to, wants to bother. You know, it wants to be bothered. Um, and it wants to hold on to uh, its insights if it has any or its pain if it has any which it usually does. Um, but, so I thought we could practice a little bit, simply listening and not bother about keeping anything in mind. Um, and, and as Heather said, if you have your cell phones with you, uh, would you just take them out and turn them on? And then, well, Cage used to do these performances where he'd bring in 12 radios and have them tuned to different stations. And so we'll do that with the cell phones. If you just turn them on a ringtone, your favorite ringtone, so that um, you know if you're getting any important messages, any texts, or if you have smartphones. And sometimes it depends. Some sometimes when I do this, the the phones never go off, and it's like the, the most unpopular crowd who comes to meditation class. But. <laughs> But sometimes, I don't know, on a Friday night, they might be going off a little bit. Um, okay, did, ever, did most people turn them on? Okay, so then what I'd like to do, if it's not, sometimes it can be a little disturbing, but um, if you're comfortable taking a meditation posture, which basically means sitting comfortably with your back relatively straight, in a position that you could hold for you know, 15 minutes without moving, although if you need to move, obviously, <laughs> feel free. Um, if you're comfortable letting your eyes close, let your eyes close. If you want to open them and look around, it's not that interesting, but you can. And then... You know, there are all kinds of different ways to meditate. But what I'd ask you to do here is as little as possible. You know, simply sit and listen to whatever surrounds you in the way of sound. Which means listening both to the silence, to the random noises, to your own inner experience. And also I'm going to interrupt a little bit and read some quotes from Cage, which maybe will be interesting and maybe will be annoying. And if you notice your mind getting preoccupied with other kinds of input and you're not simply listening and suspending judgment and being impartial and not bothering about what you keep in mind, if you notice that you're getting caught, there's usually a moment, however far down whatever path you've gone, there's usually a moment when you realize, oh, wait, I'm not 
simply listening. So at that moment, just, just let go of whatever it is you're caught up in and relax back into the feeling of being surrounded by sound. And we'll, we'll do this maybe for about 15 minutes or so. One thing to be aware of, you, you may start to see how your mind likes to identify the sound by telling you what it is, you know, church bells. And you, it's not, that's not wrong, that's what the mind does, it perceives, it, it you know, it puts things into categories, known categories. It likes to put words on experience. And, and the point is not to stop that. The point is just to see it for what it is. And that that labeling, identifying, perceiving of the sound is different from the raw sensory experience of the sound, which will, keep, will still be going on. So we're more interested here in staying with the direct auditory experience. And in, kind of in the background, you can see your mind just does all that naming by itself. Cage said things like, if you develop an ear for sounds that are musical, it is like developing an ego. You begin to refuse sounds that are not musical, and that way cut yourself off from a good deal of experience.
He said, in Zen they say, if something is boring after two minutes, try it for four. If still boring, try it for eight, 16, 32, and so on. Eventually one discovers that it's not boring at all, but very interesting. Theater takes place all the time, he said, wherever one is, and art simply facilitates persuading one that this is the case. I think that life is marvelously complex and that no matter what we do, there's room to be irritated. I don't think we ever arrive at the stillness that we imagine. I love the story of the Zen monk who said, now that I'm enlightened, I'm just as miserable as ever. This is also quoting from Cage. I gave a performance of my piece called Empty Words Part 4 for the students of Chugyam Trumpa at Naropa Institute in Boulder. The piece goes on for two and a half hours and contains long silences of four and five minutes duration. And then out of that silence, I just say a few letters of the alphabet following a score which was written through chance operations from the journal of Henry David Thoreau. Meanwhile, there are these very faint images of Thoreau's drawings being projected on a screen behind me, but they're very dim and hardly change at all, perhaps once every 20 minutes. I thought it was an ideal piece for a Buddhist audience, but they became absolutely furious and yelled at me and tried to get me to stop the performance. The next morning, I had a meeting with Chugyam Trumpa, and he asked me to join the faculty at Naropa. I just wanted to read you a couple of things that at that um, those lectures that DT Suzuki gave that Cage was at uh, reverberated like the frog jumping in the pond reverberated in, you know throughout the um, cultural world. Um, so I just want to give you a few examples of that. Um, 
but before I do, my, my idea is a shrink with the, with the cage stuff, listening to sounds, is I don't think cage would have necessarily gone in this direction, but I think the, the way we listen to sounds when we're meditating here is how I would imagine one could listen to emotional experience. Um, that the, the same kind of attentiveness and non-judgmental, uh, impartial attention as uh, turned back on emotional experience is um, something that uh, that we don't ordinarily give ourselves. Um, even in some Buddhist circles, there's a kind of demonization of certain kinds of emotional experience or a kind of secret wish to get rid of certain aspects of our emotional experience. So my... my um, uh, uh, subterranean uh, intent in um, uh, working with sound first is to try to uh, change that a little bit. Um, so this thing I want to read to you is from a profile a few years ago about John, the poet John Ashbery that was in The New Yorker. And you'll see the, the reason for reading it. Uh, there have been many times in his life when he felt completely stuck, when the poetry seemed to dry up completely. But the longest and worst began shortly after he graduated from college and lasted more than a year. Then he happened to go to a John Cage concert and he heard music of changes, nearly an hour of banging on a piano alternating with periods of silence as dictated by a score that Cage had put together using the I Ching so that it would be determined by chance rather than by his choice. The music seemed to him to be full of powerful meanings and the idea of composing by chance made him think about writing in a completely different way. It made him want to go right back home and start work. Ever since, he has felt that what he calls managed chance is the right method for him. It feels to him more like transcription than composition, though not the so-called automatic writing of the that, the that the surrealists claim to practice, not the direct voice of his unconscious speaking as if there were such a thing. Rather, as the words came to him from somewhere inside, he becomes aware of them and makes a few improvements. Ashbery compares his poems to environments, the idea being that an environment is something that you are immersed in but cannot possibly be conscious of the whole of. They are akin, to this sense, in, they are akin in this sense to environmental art, where, as he puts it, you're surrounded by different elements of a work, and it doesn't really matter whether you're focusing on one of them or none of them at any particular moment, but you're getting a kind of indirect refraction from the situation that you're in. And I'll just interrupt. So that's, that's what I think when we're practicing meditation, I think we're, we're immersing ourselves in, a, in our own internal landscape in this way that's similar to what uh, the writer here is talking about with Ashbery that you can never grasp the whole of your experience, but you're getting what she calls here a, a kind of indirect refraction from the situation that you're in. So I like that. Uh, this is not modesty, she goes on. He doesn't want people not to pay attention. Rather, he's trying to cultivate a different sort of attention, not focused straight-ahead scrutiny, but something more like a glance out of the corner of your eye that catches something bright and twitching that you then can't identify when you turn to look. This sort of indirect, half-conscious attention is actually harder to summon up on purpose than the usual kind. 
in the way that free associating out loud is harder than speaking in an ordinary logical manner. A person reading or hearing his language automatically tries to make sense out of it. Sense, not sound, is our default setting. Resisting the impulse to make sense, allowing sentences to accumulate into an abstract collage of meaning rather than a story or an argument requires effort. But that collage, a poem that cannot be paraphrased or explained or unpacked, is what Ashbery is after. To Ashbery, it's significant that poems are experiences that take place over time, like music, that you can't understand a poem in one outside-of-time instant, as, as you sometimes can a painting. And the distractions of listening to a reading create a kind of in-the-round effect, as he puts it. That was the effect he was trying to achieve in particular when he wrote a particular poem called Litany, a poem comprising two parallel columns of words that in theory are supposed to be read simultaneously. He wanted to simulate the experience of overhearing two conversations at once, which he finds interesting even though or because he cannot properly understand either one. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I, it makes a lot of sense to me. And then the, the next thing I wanted to read before I read you my own words is um, uh, from Philip Guston, um, the painter who was also at those Suzuki lectures. So you could hear like a whole different kind of person from Cage or from um, Ashbery, but talking in, a, you know, in his own way. And that's, again, another point I, that I want to make is that Everyone has to make their own uh, synthesis of what the Dharma, you know, uh, is uh, helping us to find. So it's different for everybody. So this is this is Philip Gustin talking. Uh, everyone knows about art except the artist. He, it seems, must find out not about art, but about how to stay on the treadmill. Each time he paints, he must discover how to trust himself, his instincts, without knowing how it will turn out. It sounds easy until you try it. I think it was Picasso who was interviewed and who was asked, what has been the most important thing in your life, master? And he replied, self-trust. He said that it had taken him a lifetime to learn how to trust his inchoate urges and instincts. And it's not easy to achieve because we don't even recognize the extent to which we are victims of the institutionalized art which is all around us. Now, nor how often we check ourselves. You have a feeling or thought, check, check, check. Of the two writers that I've admired the most for years, Kafka and Isaac Babel, Isaac Babel gave a lovely, ironic speech to the Soviet Writers' Union in 1934. He ended his talk with the following remark, the party and the government have given us everything but have deprived us of one privilege. A very important privilege, comrades, has been taken away from you, that of writing badly. Isn't that beautiful? Where am I? Doesn't anyone want to paint badly? a little more. I think in my studies and broodings about the art of the past, my greatest ideal is Chinese painting, 
especially Sung painting dating from about the 10th or 11th century. Sung period training involves doing something thousands and thousands of times, bamboo shoots and birds, until someone else does it, not you, and the rhythm moves through you. I think that's what the Zen Buddhists call satori, and I have had it happen to me. It's a double activity when you know and don't know, and it shouldn't really be talked about. So I work towards that moment, and if a year or two later I look at some of the work I've done and try to start judging it, I find it's impossible. You can't judge it because it was felt. What measure is there other than the fact that at one point in your life you trusted a feeling? You have to trust that feeling and then continue trusting yourself. And it works in a reverse way. I know that I started similar things in the past 20 to 25 years ago and would then scrape them out. I remember the pictures I scraped out very well. In fact, some of them are sharper in my mind than the ones that remained. Well then, I would subsequently ask, why did I scrape them out? Well, I wasn't ready to accept it. That's the only answer. This leads me to another point. It doesn't occur to many viewers that the artist often has difficulty accepting the painting himself. You can't assume that I gloried in it or celebrated it. I didn't. I'm a night painter. So when I come into the studio the next morning, the delirium is over. I know I won't remember detail, but I will remember the feeling of the whole thing. I come into the studio very fearfully. I creep in to see what happened the night before. And the feeling is one of, my God, did I do that? That's about the only measure I have, the kind of shaking, trembling of, that's me, I did that? But most of the time, we're carpenters. We build and build and add and prepare. And when you drag yourself into the studio, you say, oh, that's what I did. It's horrible. All of it has to go. This is one of the last-minute touches. Often at the moment, you're playing your last card and are ready to give up. Another kind of awareness enters, and you work with that moment but you can't force that moment either. You truly have to have given up, and then something happens. So I I often think of meditation as a kind of formless art, you know, and that the attitude that you need in order to practice it over a lifetime successfully is akin to what Gustin's talking about there, where, uh, you know, my God, is that what, what happened? You know, what was I doing? I've, you know, failing and failing and failing, but having the courage to keep going, feeling like you're getting nowhere, but then suddenly, you know, if you're lucky, another kind of awareness opening up where you're, you know, more like the, um, the thing about Ashbury, where you're immersed in the landscape, no longer necessarily making sense of it in the same way that you used to, or that you used to try to do. Um, so any questions about that before I move on? Yeah. I quoted a lot of that. There's one article I wrote. Uh, that book, Psychotherapy Without the Self, is a uh, compilation of essays, and I wrote one essay trying to talk about D.T. Suzuki and its influence on art, and I quoted a lot of this. It's hard to get away with just quoting, you know, but <laughs> I tried. Yeah. You want to stretch or something and then um, sit down again?
this is the most fun in, in being here is getting to hit the drum. Um, so I'm going to keep the I'm going to keep the mic. You have to find the right distance, so you have to help me. Is this? Can you hear me all right like this? Okay. Um, so as I said, the, I'm working on this new book that's called The Trauma of Everyday Life, and the inspiration for the book um, came, I believe, from a, a, a time a few years ago when I was teaching with uh, Bob Thurman and Sharon Salzberg. And um, I was talking about Winnicott and the importance of the mother and how that kind of attention is helpful in meditation. Um, and he pulled out a, a Tibetan poem, a Mongolian poem um, from the 18th century that began, I was like a mad child long lost his old mother, never could find her though she was with him always. And then it goes on to talk about uh, shunyata, or voidness, or emptiness, as the mother. And the, this is the, the monk's enlightenment song, where he's realized that he's totally misunderstood what enlightenment was and what he was seeking, and that actually it was here, uh, you know, in the everyday, all around him, and uh, he had just been missing it. And um, uh, Thurman goes on, the poem is beautiful, and Thurman went on and, you know, explained it all. Uh, but for me, just hearing the line, I was like a mad child, long lost his old mother, what, like set something, created some reverberations. Um, and then I got into this whole thing about how the Buddha's mother died when he was a week old, um, which is true as far as we know anything is true about the Buddha. That's the story of the Buddha's life. And, uh, and it was interesting to me as a, as a psychiatrist that that was true but never remarked upon very much in the Buddhist literature. So I decided I would, would try to make something of that. Um, and so the result is, is this book, which is about trauma. And, and I, so the idea is that most of us are um, carrying some kind of traumatic feeling, even if we don't really know where it's coming from. Some of us do know where it's coming from. Uh, which can be an advantage, but some of us don't know where it's coming from, uh, and um, um, but might have a feeling of shame about it, or a, a, a kind of um, uh, attempt to ignore it, or uh, defend against it, or pretend it's not there, but that actually acknowledging it, uh, the trauma of everyday life uh, that we're all struggling with, that somehow the Buddhist uh, way is to acknowledge it and then to make use of the feelings uh, in order to bring us to uh, wherever that, whatever that enlightenment place really is. So that's really the whole book, but I'll read you the, this is the first chapter. Um, and again, if it, if, well, we'll see, I'm not gonna apologize too much for, <clears throat> if, it, if, if you start to lose me, you raise your hand or something, okay? I could tell when I first came upon Buddhism that there was going to be a problem. There were too many paradoxes for there not to be. Self appears but does not truly exist, taught the Buddha. Change your thoughts but remain as you are, said the Dalai Lama. The mind that does not understand is the Buddha, there is no other, wrote the Zen philosopher D.T. Suzuki. I was excited by these teachings. They rang true in some ill-defined way, but it was not easy to make the transition from conceptual, from conceptual appreciation to experiential understanding. 
nor could I even say with confidence that I truly understood things conceptually. At the time of my introduction to Buddhism, I was still a college student and I was good at only one thing, studying. I knew how to write a paper, prepare for a test, gather information and analyze it a little bit. I had figured out how to be reasonably comfortable in an academic environment, but I was after something more, although I found it difficult to put my finger on just what that might be. Whenever I tried to put it into words, it sounded banal. While comfortable in my academic world, I was uncomfortable with myself. Deep down, I felt unsure, not of my intellectual skills, but of something more amorphous. I could frame it in terms of existential anxiety or even adolescent ennui, but it felt more personal than that. I worried there was something wrong with me, and I longed to feel more at ease. I had the sense that I was living on the surface of myself, that I was more two-dimensional than I really was, that I was inhibited or was inhibiting myself in some ill-defined way. I felt boring, although I framed it in terms of feeling empty. To admit that I felt boring would have made me feel too ashamed. <clears throat> Buddhism appealed to me because while it hinged on paradox, it also seemed very logical. It spoke directly to my feelings and even promised that there was something concrete to do about them. But the Buddha, in his first noble truth, affirmed my experience by invoking dukkha or suffering as a basic fact of life. He spoke about it very psychologically. He even specified that there was something uncomfortable about the self in particular, some way that it could not help but disappoint. This made me feel relieved, as if to suggest that I was not making it up. If the Buddha had noticed it all those years ago, maybe it was not just my problem. Maybe there was even something to do about it. The first words of the Buddha that I ever read, preserved in a collection called the Dhammapada, reinforced my feelings of hopefulness by speaking directly to my helplessness. He seemed to be describing my own mind. Flapping like a fish thrown on dry ground, it trembles all day struggling. I liked the image of the fish on dry ground. It spoke of my discomfort of what I would now call a feeling of estrangement, a sense of not being at peace or at one with myself, and it caught the feeling of my anxiety perfectly. But there was more than just a diagnosis of the problem in the Buddha's approach. There was a science to it that I found reassuring, an inner science. Like an archer, an arrow, the wise man steadies his trembling mind, a fickle and restless weapon. The Buddha had a solution, something to do for the problem, a way of working directly with the mind that appealed to the budding therapist in me. There was a path with a goal and a concrete method that one could practice in order to feel better. The mind is restless, to control it is good, a disciplined mind is the road to nirvana. I was excited by the promise of the Buddhist psychology drawn to it before ever learning much about Western therapy. I could see that my mind needed work and the Buddhist prescription of self-investigation and mental discipline of what he called mindfulness and clear comprehension made intuitive sense to me. Yet the more I learned about meditation, the clearer it became that there was a limit to how far I could think or reason or even practice my way in. I wanted to understand and master it, but it frustrated me when I approached it. Whenever I sat down to meditate, my own insecurities rose to the surface. I was never sure if I was doing it right. 
I've written of how my first understanding of meditation came from learning to juggle. I was at a Buddhist summer institute in Colorado, the same one that Cage talked about where he gave his performance, in the summer after my junior year in college. The faculty was full of Buddhist teachers, university professors, Tibetan lamas, Zen roshis, American Peace Corps veterans in the process of becoming meditation teachers. I took classes from all of them, but my roommates randomly assigned to me for the summer months, stopped going to class after a week or two, turned off by the pretension of many of the most popular instructors. They watched me laboring at meditation and after some time took pity on me. One day they offered to teach me to juggle. I was up for the challenge and worked at it assiduously. After several days of practice, I succeeded at keeping three balls in the air. My mind relaxed and I momentarily stopped worrying about keeping everything together. A new kind of space opened up in which everything flowed in its own way and I settled into it. I was present but not in the way, attentive and physically active but not interfering, detached but not disinterested, watching but at the same time completely involved. My familiar and troubled self did not disappear. It became one more thing to be aware of, one of the balls I was juggling. Instead of secretly fighting with it in the back of my mind, I became more accepting of my troubling inner feelings. I sensed a shift in my basic orientation to life, an easing of my self-centeredness, more of an ability to take myself lightly. I also found that it was possible to maintain this new frame of mind, both when I was juggling and sometimes when I was not. If I kept a light and steady touch on my mind, something of the juggling remained with me. If I tried too hard, thought about it too much, or conversely relaxed altogether, the balls fell out of the air. But if I dropped all that and just juggled, it seemed to take care of itself. Juggling and by implication meditation required that I suspend my usual orientation and enter some new territory, an intermediate zone that seemed to create something new or evoke something old. My hands were not only juggling the balls, they were juggling my mind. Or maybe my mind was doing the juggling, not my hands. And where was I, the troubled and anxious me, the one who was worried about being good enough in this process? I really could not say. Intrigued and for the moment relieved, I returned to my meditation classes. I had a new way to approach meditation now and a new orientation to myself. I began to appreciate that Buddhism demanded something more of me than studying and also something more than just rote practice. Not that it did not engage my intellect, it did, and not that it did not encourage conceptual rigor and rigorous effort. These were things I appreciated about it, but it demanded something in addition. I knew nothing of art at this time, but I can see now that Buddhism is as much inner art as it is inner science. It is a formless art to be sure, the only product is the, is the self, and even that comes quickly into continuous question, but it is an art nonetheless, one that demands its own touch, one that I could only understand to the extent that I could give myself over to it completely. This emphasis on surrender and process was not one that I knew before I came upon Buddhism. Perhaps if I had been a musician or an actor or a painter or a poet, it would not have seemed like such a revelation. But for me, it was like stumbling into a new reality, one in which I was suddenly being asked to give of myself in a new way. 
In Zen, the image of falling backwards into a well is used to describe what it is like. For me, it was like feeling my way into myself while blindfolded, never quite sure what I would find. Feeling my way into myself, that was definitely what it was like. Feeling my way into all the doubts and anxieties and insecurities and dis-ease that I would have been all too happy to get rid of, that I had initially hoped meditation would destroy. Feeling my way into them in my body as well as in my mind and feeling my way through them. Something changed as I embraced the art of meditation. Instead of approaching myself with dread, with the secret hope that I could rise above my personal struggles, I began to explore the texture of my own suffering. No one had ever told me such a thing was possible. Even now, as I practiced under the tutelage of a new generation of Buddhist teachers, I had trouble reconciling my experience with what I was learning from my Buddhist books. The fundamental psychological teaching of the Buddha was called Anatman in Sanskrit or Anatta in Pali, the language of the Buddhist scriptures, the Sanskrit-related tongue closer to what the Buddha must have spoken, meaning no soul or no self. My Buddhist teachers stressed this at every opportunity. Part of my initial attraction to Buddhism lay in this central concept. I liked that there was an alternative to the Western preoccupation with self, to the psychoanalytic effort to build up the ego. Where id was, their ego shall be, pronounced Freud in a famous maxim that I had already unconsciously subscribed to. Not quite ready to relinquish my id, still in the process of finding it, in fact. I liked the counterintuitive implications of no self, the allure of egolessness. I liked the very sound of it. It took away some kind of pressure I had been feeling to make myself into someone I could put my finger on, something I could explain. It let me off the hook a little, relaxed me, gave me a sense of relief. No self. It had a nice ring. While most other people were busy making themselves bigger, better, and stronger, I could head in a different direction. Go to zero. Less is more. Wasn't that what people were saying? Maybe I could leave my it alone after all. <laughs> but my understanding of no self was limited at this point. I took it to mean that my inner anxiety, myself, was unreal and would drop away once I woke up. It was confusing to find that meditation, rather than dropping me into a void of no self, backed me into myself. It tricked me, so to speak. The paradox that lured me to Buddhism in the beginning did not resolve as I became more familiar with the Buddha's teachings. It deepened. While meditation was teaching me to hold myself with a light touch, it was also helping me to emerge, to emerge through my suffering, not in spite of it. I continued to study Buddhist theory, of course, and I understood theoretically that there was no self to be found, that what we took for a self was only a conglomeration of parts. Just as a car is made up of wheels, axles, motors, chassis, and so forth. In the Buddhist sutras, the Buddha called the parts that are construed in their interaction as a self the five skandhas, the five heaps or aggregates, Sensations, feelings, perceptions, mental processes, and consciousness were the five skandhas. I knew that. There was no self. There were only the aggregates. That was one of the fundamental principles of the Buddhist path, repeated at the outset of every teaching. Yet the more experience I had with meditation, the more connected I felt with myself. Where before I had been living on the surface, 
secretly afraid that I was missing something or that there was something off about me, I now felt, uh, how else can I phrase it, more at home. Instead of dropping away permanently as I, newly schooled in Buddhist metaphysics, hoped and expected it would do, myself seemed to be broadening its horizons. Excuse me. Uh, affirmation that I might not be completely off base came to me from the Buddhist sutras themselves. In one, there is a story about a conversation between the Buddha and the king of Kosala, the local ruler of one of the kingdoms where the Buddha roamed. Why is it that your followers seem so different from that of other teachers and sects? This king wanted to know. You emphasize the inescapability of dukkha the truth of suffering, and yet your monks look so full of life. The followers of other religions look haggard, coarse, pale, emaciated, and unprepossessing, the king went on, while your disciples are joyful, elated, jubilant, and exultant. They even seem lighthearted, the king went on, as if they have a gazelle's mind. This was indeed a strange religion. How was it that a willingness to embrace suffering yielded such a sense of vitality? The, the king was seeing what I was feeling, the fruits of meditation, balance, ease, joyfulness, and humor, seemed to emerge in conjunction with an acknowledgement of suffering. <clears throat> this was strange, I thought, but I could not ignore the shift that was taking place inside of me. While Buddhism taught about no self, my... <clears throat> My own experience was to feel more connected, more alive, less at odds with or afraid of myself, and more able to rest in my own consciousness. I was less fraught, less worried about the state of myself, less preoccupied with what was wrong with me, and more able to just be. The feelings of being like a fish out of water were beginning to diminish. I've come to realize that this paradoxical strategy was one of the Buddha's greatest discoveries. Trauma happens to everyone. The potential for it is part and parcel of the precariousness of human existence. Some traumas, loss, death, accidents, disease, or abuse are explicit. Others, like the emotional deprivation of an, un of an unloved child, are more subtle. And some, like my own feelings of estrangement, seem to come from nowhere. But it's hard to imagine the scope of an individual life without envisioning some kind of trauma, and it's hard for most people to know what to do about it. I remember talking to my father just before he died from a, from a malignant brain tumor a couple of years ago. He was 84 years old, an accomplished physician who had lived a long and productive life and had worked steadily until his tumor was discovered a month before, too late for treatment. Have you made your peace with what's happening? I asked him somewhat awkwardly in one of our final conversations, tiptoeing around the dreaded word death. I could say that I'm trying, he said, his words coming slowly and haltingly now, but I feel like I'm finally up against something I can't do anything about. It's rare for someone to get through life without facing trauma. I know my father had his share, at 15, he injected his own father with morphine as he lay dying of mesothelioma and asbestos-caused lung cancer he came down with after insulating his own attic. But I think he did his best to keep it out of his consciousness for as long as he could. 
the Buddha counseled another way. By learning from the beginning to be with the traumas that constitute us, we can train our minds in the wisdom and compassion that the Buddha is known for. The Buddha was not a physician, although he was often described as one, at least partly because he gave his first set of teachings on the Four Noble Truths in the form traditionally used by doctors of his time to present their cases. Like them, he described the illness, gave its cause, declared that a cure was available, and laid out the components of the treatment. In so doing, he pushed against the constraints of his culture. An ancient Sanskrit proverb declares, one should not speak unless what one says is both true and pleasant. Buddha rejected this view. There was nothing pleasant about his first noble truth, spoken by him in the form of a one-word exclamation, dukkha. The word, generally translated as suffering, but carrying the meaning of what we would today call trauma, was the Buddha's emphatic summary of the entire human predicament. When forced to elaborate on what he meant, Buddha let loose with a torrent of explanation. Birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are inescapable. Being close to those who are disagreeable, being separated from those who are loved, and not getting what one wants are all unpleasant facts of life. Indeed, just being a person in this world brings suffering because of how insignificant we feel and how impermanent we are. Even pleasant experiences carry a whiff of dissatisfaction because of their inability to provide ultimate comfort, no matter how fulfilling they eventually run their course. But there was another quality to the dukkha the Buddha described, a more subtle description of the unsatisfactory nature of the human predicament. The word itself is a compound with an interesting derivation. The prefix do means badness or difficulty. Lost my place, hold on. prefix means badness or difficulty, while the suffix ka can refer to the hole at the center of a wheel into which an axle fits. The word thus connotes a bad fit, making for a bumpy ride. For me, this image of a poorly fitting axle was another way of describing the sense of not fitting in, of not quite belonging, of being slightly at odds with myself, that had afflicted me for as long as I could remember. It was probably no accident, given the derivation of the word, that the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths was entitled, Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma. His listeners would have been aware of the connotations of the word dukkha and would have appreciated the imagery of the Buddha turning a wheel smoothly. Questioned some years after his enlightenment by a local prince about his penchant for delivering bad news, Buddha said that he could no longer abide by the traditional Sanskrit principle of only saying what was true and pleasant. He marched to a different drum, he maintained, and would speak of what was true and beneficial, even if it was disagreeable. To illustrate his point, he pointed to a baby on the prince's lap. What if the infant put a stick or pebble in his mouth? Wouldn't the prince pull it out, even if it were likely to cause the baby some distress? Wasn't that what a doctor sometimes had to do? not to mention a mother, but he added one caveat. 
He would speak the beneficial, if disagreeable, truth only if he knew the time to say it. As is the case with good therapists today, tact was a major concern of the Buddha. If someone was not ready to acknowledge his or her trauma, he would not force the issue. Each individual had to liberate him or herself after all. The best a teacher, even a Buddha, can do is show them how. This generation is entangled in a tangle, began the earliest and possibly most influential commentary on the Buddha's teachings, written many generations ago in Sri Lanka, somewhere around the fifth century of the Common Era. The tangle refers to the way we only want to hear what is true and pleasant, the way we refuse what is disagreeable. In the Buddha's time, as well as in our own, there's a rush toward some imagined version of normal, an intolerance of the precarious foundation upon which we are perched. It was true thousands of years ago, and it remains true to this day. The novelist William Styron once expressed this perfectly. Overheard when he was a young man in Paris, drunkenly falling into his oysters and pleading to his friends for relief, Styron gave voice to what for most people remains an unacknowledged whisper in the back of their minds. I ain't got no more resistance to change than a snowflake, Styron moaned. I'm going home to the James River and grow peanuts. Styron's willingness to acknowledge his trauma is unusual. Most of us refuse to admit it, even to ourselves, but live in a state of entanglement with it nonetheless. A patient of mine recently gave voice to a similar sentiment in the midst of her therapy with me. She was sober and she had a different image for her suffering, but she was pleading in much the same way as William Styron. I feel like a person alone in a sailboat in the middle of the ocean clinging for dear life to the mast, Monica confided as she began to well up, the silence of her therapy session cushioning her tears. It's too much, I can't hang on any longer, I don't know what else to do. An accomplished and beloved professor in her mid-50s, Monica was astute enough to be able to give language to her trauma, one that many people feel but shy away from. She too was like a fish out of water. There was an urgency to her communication, I remember, a desperation, but also an honesty. I think it came in the context of talking about her mother's declining health, but I recognized the feeling and did not think it was only about her mother's impending demise. I was too familiar with what she was talking about to attribute it solely to the approaching loss of her mom, although that may well have been an important clue about what was provoking her sudden outburst. Life's difficulties often reduce us to the feeling Monica was talking about, I thought. What with war and earthquakes and rape and disease, it's a wonder life is not more difficult more of the time. But even if we push natural or man-made disasters to one side and try to stick to normal everyday life, things are still a struggle. Life is beautiful sometimes, for sure. In fact, it's totally amazing. Every day, a good day. But that doesn't stop things from being fragile and precarious, nor does it stop us from feeling all too alone. Of course, the line between normal everyday life and calamity seems extraordinarily thin sometimes. But regular life, even in its glory, is difficult. Things don't always go the way they should. The specter of loss is always hovering. And we often feel adrift, unmoored, fearful, and out of our depths. Luckily, I did not relay any of these thoughts to Monica. Something more urgent popped out of my mouth. But you're the ocean as well, I replied. 
Several years later, after her mother had passed away, Monica reminded me of my comment. It had had a tremendous impact, she said. I was surprised I could just as easily have made a case for her not being the ocean, but I was glad I had been able to say something that mattered, something she remembered, something that made her think. So much of therapy happens in the moment and passes right out of memory. There was a Buddhist slant to my retort, I reflected. It hit on something that I had learned from my own experience. Trauma is the way into the self and the way out. To be free, to come to terms with our lives, we have to have a direct experience of ourselves as we really are. To understand selflessness, the central and liberating concept I was reaching for when I reminded Monica of her oceanic nature, we have to first find the self that we take to be so real, the one that is pushing us around in life, the one that feels traumatized, entangled in a tangle. The freedom the Buddha envisioned does not come from jettisoning imprisoning thoughts and feelings or from abandoning the suffering self. It comes from learning how to hold it all differently, juggling them rather than cleaving to their ultimate realities. Monica was at a pivotal point in therapy, a pivotal point in her life. Some might say she was regressed, but there is an inherent prejudice in this word that connotes an almost universal fear of the emergence of such strong feelings of dread. Monica was in touch with herself on a primitive level, and this was a real accomplishment. She really did feel alone, adrift, and afraid. However much I might have wanted to comfort her to show her how her current feelings were conditioned by early childhood experiences of deprivation and were therefore presently unreal, I restrained myself. From my perspective, her willingness to expose her true feelings was a great opportunity. On one level, Monica was in touch with her reality. There she was, clutching the mast of her identity. On another level, she was poised for a breakthrough. All around her, just outside of her apprehension, was the liberating ocean of her mind. I was reaching for this when I was speaking with her. I was not thinking of Freud's oceanic feeling when I made my comment to her of the way he reduced spiritual experience to a resurrection of infantile oneness with the mother at the breast. I was not trying to tell her that she and her mother were one despite her mother's impending death, and I was not trying to show her the childhood or infantile origins of her painful feelings. I was indicating to her that she was actually one step away from understanding her true nature. Her conviction about her predicament was inadvertently summoning an image of its release. Convinced as she was that she was clinging to the mast of her ship, she was nonetheless painting a picture of the sea. And somewhere inside, when I pointed out the huge part of her internal landscape she was ignoring, Monica let go, just a little. This rhythm of trauma and its release is one that runs through Buddhism like a great underground river. I say underground because even within Buddhist culture, it's not always clearly acknowledged. There's a hidden trauma at the heart of the Buddha's own story, for example, one that is known but not often spoken of, one that I found full of meaning despite the lack of attention it has garnered over the years. Buddha's mother died seven days after giving birth to him. Overtly in the myths and legends that have grown up around the life of the Buddha, very little is made of this fact. But scratch the surface of the Buddha's biography and one can see a metaphor churning away, lying in wait, one might say, for the psychologically-minded times we're now living in. Something was nagging at the Buddha's heart, something he had no memory of, a taste of suffering so early in his life 
that for all intents and purposes it should not have mattered. Raised by loving parents, his mother's sister stepped in and took care of him like her own, and surrounded by all the joy and wealth and caring attention his parents could muster, the young man who was to become the Buddha nevertheless felt that something was wrong. Whether this feeling stemmed from the loss of his biological mother or from a later confrontation with the realities of old age, sickness, and death, we do not know. But the presence of this early loss in his psyche creates a motif that anyone who struggles with inexplicable, with inexplicable feelings of estrangement or alienation can relate to. The traumas of everyday life can easily make us feel like a motherless child. In responding to Monica, I was making a critical point. It's not as important to find the cause of our traumatized feelings as it is to learn how to relate to them. Because everyday life is so challenging, there's a great need to pretend. Our most intimate feelings get shunted to the side, relegated to our dreams. We all want to be normal. Life, even normal life, is arduous, demanding, and ultimately threatening. We all have to deal with it, and none of us really know how. We're all traumatized by life, by its unpredictability, its randomness, its lack of regard for our feelings and the losses it brings. Each in our own way, we suffer. Even if nothing else goes wrong, and it's rare that this is the case, old age, illness, and death loom just over the horizon, like the monsters our, child, our children need us to protect them from in the night. The story of the Buddha's enlightenment shows him confronting his own trauma and using it to broaden the horizons of his mind. A Buddhist teacher of mine has a pithy way of describing how the Buddha accomplished this. When dealing with painful emotions, Joseph Goldstein suggests, the way out is through. Emotional pain is as fruitful an object of awareness as anything else. It may even have qualities like intensity, that make it particularly useful as a means of training the mind. In exploring the Buddha's life story, we can see him doing just this. He may not have known from whence his feelings of trauma came, but he was able to create for himself the inner environment of attunement and responsiveness that he needed. His success is a model for the rest of us. Confronted with unpleasant feelings that we often are at a loss to explain, we can learn to use those feelings to show us the oceans of our minds. In a famous statement, the Buddha once said that he taught one thing and one thing only, suffering and its release. As has often been pointed out, to most ears this sounds like two things. But the Buddha was choosing his words carefully. The clear-eyed comprehension of suffering permits its release. The Buddha, in his role as therapist, showed how this was possible. The great promise of his teachings was that suffering is only the first noble truth and that acknowledging it opens up all the others. By the time the Buddha, turning the wheel of the Dharma, got to truths three and four, the end of suffering and the eightfold path to its relief, he had filled his listeners with new hope. Trauma, he was saying, did not have to be the last word. So thanks, that was a lot to listen to. Um, so I'm, I'm open for questions about what I'm talking about or anything else about the interface of therapy and meditation or also just comments or thoughts or reflections.
Yeah. First of all, thank you very much. Very satisfying. Thank you. Thank you very much. He's just saying thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, when I picked up the notes from reading one yeah. um, initially, uh, I'm not all that familiar. I wrote, read uh, some time ago, uh, also about a thinker, but it struck me as how first person, especially the first half of that um, uh, chapter was. Mm -hmm. And uh, very immediate, you know, just talking about the juggling, just, you know, and almost a narrative, very, and uh, I wondered if um, you, uh, when you come about writing, whether, you know, what is your motivation, and do you ever question it? Because obviously, you know, it's, uh, it's worthwhile and all that. I just wonder what the, because uh, the juggling seems so straightforward, to lose yourself in it, but for something as high level as writing a book, what is your motivation to ever question it and think about yeah, it? Yeah, that's a nice, could people hear the question? You could all hear, right? Um, I actually really, I started writing when I first got married and moved to New York, and my wife is a sculptor. And um, uh, we didn't actually know each other that well when we got married, but, um, uh, and I moved to New York to be with her. And uh, some, a little bit of time into living together, she was like, I have to go to my studio now. And I, and I was kind of shocked that she was leaving me to go to her studio. And I needed, I needed something to do. So I spread my, um, my stuff out on the kitchen table and, and started working on the, the first article that I ever wrote, basically. Or the second article, maybe. Um, so I really started writing j just to... Um, uh, I could have just as easily been meditating, um, but because I was trying, basically trying to to um, uh, take care of a feeling of abandonment, um, and and then um, uh, I got intrigued by the I I set out to uh, to answer some questions for myself, like did I really understand anything? Because <clears throat> the first stuff I wrote was about the um, psychoanalytic uh, view of ego and the Buddhist view of ego and was the ego that we're trying to get rid of in Buddhism the same as the ego that we're um, dealing with in psychotherapy and is the emptiness that, that uh, we're looking for in Buddhism, is that the same emptiness that borderline patients uh, describe when they're describing their inner states? These were questions that I was um, wondering if I had the answers to or not. And so I wanted to look at what was really written in Buddhism about emptiness, what was really written in psychoanalysis about emptiness, and then I was comparing and contrasting. Um, and I found that helpful because it forced me to define for myself what I knew. And then gr gradually the, uh, those articles turned into writing a, a book, with thought, which became Thoughts Without a Thinker, because an editor got a hold of those articles and thought, oh, maybe this person can write a book, and I had never really thought I could write a book. Um, and then I was, okay, I have to write, I'm writing as a therapist, and the, the um, editors wanted case material. And I was <clears throat> always very reluctant, although you, I, you know, I put in one line, you know, one conversation in this chapter. Um, 
but I was always very reluctant about writing about my patients because um, for a couple of reasons, but I didn't like sitting and listening, doing the therapy and listening, trying to grab uh, good bits for the books. <laughs> it, it felt, it felt, uh, it didn't feel quite right. Although sometimes I can't resist, but um, um, but I also thought, well, if any of this has been, if I've truly integrated any of this or understood any of this, I ought to be able to use my own experience to illustrate it. And so that became a challenge. Like, what do, what do I really, what what um, uh, what memories do I have that really, you know, what happened in my own therapy? And in in the actually the latter part of Thoughts Without a Thinker, I tried really to do that. And I really, I found I had like two or three memories, you know, so I had to make, I had to do a lot with, but I, they functioned like screen memories. I, I felt, okay, why am I, re, why do I remember this, like the juggling? Why do I remember like this one dream I used to have of my teeth falling out, you, you know? And I thought, okay, I can make you, like, where is the meaning in these things? And that was kind of, that was fun to try to find meaning in my own experience. Um, so that, that's been, um, um, uh, <clears throat> enticing, I would, and so and satisfying. And then there's something in the writing. There's something that happens in writing, <clears throat> where it makes the time go by in a, in a different way than other things. And there's a certain kind of satisfaction that comes in making it work. That, you know, which is why I was I was like interested in reading it here because I haven't read this aloud yet. You know, and it, I can usually tell if it's working if. I don't get bored reading it, and if people are less, you know, if, and that's satisfying in a different kind of, a more of in a performative way, I, I think, um, which I didn't, it, uh, which I, then I've been sort of late discovering, uh, or I discovered that in my 40s, you know, that that was something I was interested in, so that the writing gave me, that really writing about the Dharma gave me, so. Yeah. Chris. Thank you. You're welcome. Deeply, I'm sure, sentiment shared by everyone in the room. Really lovely piece. Can I hear Oh, he's just saying thank you. Yeah. <laughs> a truly lovely piece. Yeah, you're welcome. And your writing as a whole is, is really exceptional. Uh, my question is directed to you not only as a therapist, not only as a Buddhist, but also in your third capacity, which is a doctor of psychiatric medicine, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I wonder if you have anything you could share about directed practices and methodologies that perhaps you've experimented with or that you know works for your patients uh, to express these, you know, that second noble truth and begin to alleviate suffering and enhance the good in your own existence? Um, the, the question is about my role as a psychiatrist. And if I, if I have any um, directed practices that I could recommend that have helped people in specific ways, I think. Um, I, not really, I don't think. Although, um, w you know, one of the things I was glad to learn in training as a psychiatrist was about the drugs. Um, and about the, you know, the Axis One mental, you know, about, about psychosis and real mental illness, and that that does exist, 
uh, and that sometimes the medications, there is actually a place for the medications. So I felt lucky in the sense of being educated about that, that I've been able to help some people differentiate where there really is a, a, a problem that requires a, um, a, a, you know, psychiatric handling, medication handling, and where it's useful, and what people can recover from and what's hard to recover from. So that, that I feel, is a contribution that I've been able to make. I've been less, I don't know a lot about you know, specific cognitive therapy or um, various kinds of more new age therapies or body-oriented therapies. I've, I've really been a traditional sitting and talking uh, psychotherapist, you know, like third or fourth generation, psychoanalytically influenced, although I'm not an analyst, but influ very much influenced by <clears throat> the idea of two people in a room together without an agenda for what's, without a direct agenda for what's going to happen, being willing to together explore the discomfort of whatever has brought someone into this situation. And that, um, and I've found that, uh, you know, incredibly um, interesting and satisfying. And sometimes I'm able to help somebody. Um, and sometimes not, you know, it's not, it's not a cure-all for sure. But the, um, it, it has always seemed to me like a very special thing that that opportunity still exists in our culture, you know, with two people together with no purpose. You know, it's a kind of an anomaly in our culture uh, when it has a Buddhist flavor to it, just the situation. So I like that. Um, you could all hear the question, right? Uh, one of the things I've learned from Thurman is that um, the, the actual word that describes what the, um, what the Buddha's followers were wasn't, wasn't monastic or monk, it was mendicant. Um, and and <clears throat> mendicant, meaning someone who, someone who has to uh, beg for their lunch, uh, someone who, who collects alms. Um, and uh, that, that, that's actually, that, that was the tradition, that was the part of the revolutionary tradition that the Buddha established. That didn't really exist before. There were monastics, you know, the Jains had monastics and so on. 
that uh, the idea that the Buddha had for his followers was not that they, that they be completely shut away the, the way we imagine monastics are and, and really the way they, uh, in some of the cultures they've become. But that tradition of going out for, uh, you know, on alms rounds it's, it really is preserved in most of the Buddhist cultures, certainly in the Theravada Buddhist cultures. So the idea there was that there was always to be this interface with everyday life. Uh, that the um, that the uh, the practice could never get so removed that it didn't that it wouldn't make sense to the to the people living their everyday lives such that they wouldn't get some kind of teaching from the monks or from the mendicants uh, as they made their rounds. So there was this kind of interpenetration between the Dharma and everyday life. It wasn't just um, the the Dharma wasn't just for the uh, the people who had taken robes, it was also for the lay people, that the, the teachings were just as fundamental, just as important for the lay people, but they were being, they were being, it was institutionalized in a way that it was going back and forth all the time. So that, that's helped me, it, it doesn't totally answer your question, um, but it's helped me, um, it's helped me with that question. Um, I think it's the, it's the great challenge of Buddhism in the West and in the 20th and 21st century um, that it's become, uh, that it's taking root not as a monastic tradition, at least here, but as a householder tradition, that, that women are as much a part of it um, as men, which has never been the case you know, over the 2,500 years. That there, that sexuality is is not being demonized and and pushed away. I'm sure there was an incredible amount of homosexual homosexual uh, sex going on in the monasteries. There, so I know there is in the Tibetan monasteries even even today. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, I mean there is a tradition in Tibetan Buddhism of of people in robes also having. Uh, wives and families, or husbands and families, as there is in Zen. Uh, so there, it's been worming its way in, you know, over the over the years. So um, uh, I'm sure there are all kinds of problems on the householder side, uh, in terms of how easy it is to get lost in worrying about your children and get finding satisfying sexual partners and and all of that, just as I think there probably were problems on the monastic side in trying to divorce yourself so much from the temptations of the flesh and the responsibilities of um, having families and so on. But I'm not sure that it's any more difficult to practice, or, or I think it's just that we're, the emphasis is more on the other side now for us. Um, not to say, like, I'm, I'm going on retreat next week for a week, where the, the retreats you know, at the Forest Refuge uh, at, at IMS take the form of what it's like to be in a forest monastery. So I think the idea that we, can, uh, that we as lay people can go back and forth the way maybe lay people in Thailand take robes for a while and then come out, that there's something to learn in both spheres uh, is, is how I've always approached it. Okay. Yeah.
strains of Americanism come from the strong rather than just the, you know, the accoutrements of, you know, which we all have, the cushion, the Buddha, and like, what are the real strains of American Buddhism? Well, uh, um, you can hear the question, the strains of American Buddhism. Um, I think that what we were talking about just a minute ago, that it's householders and that, that women are as much a part of it, that's huge. And then the other way that I've thought about this is that the, the, it, it is in the integration with psychotherapy that um, a, a, new, a new way of talking about Buddhism certainly is emerging. Um, and, and I think that my, my work play, has played some part in that, but it's, it's, <clears throat> it's part of a larger phenomenon that the, it's, the, you know, it's been the therapists or the people who speak a therapeutic language who have picked up on Buddhism and are working to translate it and integrate it. So that you have people like uh, <clears throat> Johnny Kabat-Zinn, you know, uh, pulling out mindfulness practice from its Buddhist context and making a mindfulness-based stress reduction, which has you know, infiltrated the mental health profession with only some of the people who practice it knowing how, how Buddhist it really is. Or you have, there's a woman named Marsha Linehan who founded <clears throat> what's called dialectical behavioral therapy, which is, uh, she was a, <clears throat> excuse me, she is a behaviorist who also was a Zen student who um, had the, uh, the, the intuition that uh, borderline suicidal hospitalized patients who all, every, all the therapists were scared of because they were so impulsive and emotional were actually phobic towards their own emotions. And so she used what she knew from behaviorism and from Zen uh, practice to desensitize those patients to their own feelings. So to teach them what it was to have an emotion and how to hold it, basically. And, that, and then she operationalized it and turned it into a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, which also swept through the um, psychiatric profession, you know, really over the past 30 years. So, and those are just two examples. Um, so I think that the, the, the integration of uh, Buddhist thought with Western psychological thought is huge. And hopefully not destroying Buddhism in the process. You know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Not once I've got a hold of them. <laughs> How do I use meditation techniques within my practice? Um, not overtly, not, not often and not overtly. I, I've much more, uh, um, I was very wary of like being, uh, I didn't want to be like a Christian therapist, you, you know, um, or a Jewish therapist of, of, um, uh, of thinking that I had the answer, you know, or even that meditation was the answer. Um, so I, I really have tried without saying that that's what I was doing, but I tried, I've tried to make the, um, the therapeutic space like a meditation space so that people could, could feel safe being anxious, kind of, you know, or that, that anything that would come up would be okay uh, and that there wouldn't be an agenda. So uh, I'm, I try to be careful except when people need me to structure things for them in a kind of classic psychoanalytic way, I try not to initiate uh, in terms of what any given session is going to contain. I really, I try to wait. I really try to wait. 
and not to go necessarily with my first uh, reactions to something, but to kind of wait and hear, to listen around the edge in the way that that uh, John Ashbery thing was talking about, to, you know, to try to catch more of what might be inferred but not directly talked about. Sometimes there's something, sometimes there's nothing, you know. Um, and uh, uh, what else? Sometimes people want the Buddhism from me. They come to me for that because of the books or they're like sick of the therapy and can, you know, can't we just talk about meditation or um, won't you just t teach me how to meditate finally? And sometimes I relent. If, uh, <laughs> um, but there are other, I've sent a lot of people you know, to Sharon or Joseph or to here or, because then they, can, they don't have to pay a therapist to teach them to meditate, you know? Um, a lot of people come to me who, who uh, are already engaged in Buddhist practice, but really have some personal issues to, that they want to talk about. Um, and, and I like that because then the, the shared Buddhism is like a backdrop and I can pull that in if it's relevant or it's something we can talk about. Um, you know, which Buddhist teacher is, doesn't seem particularly clear at any given moment, and maybe, you know, like, do they still have egos, and, uh, uh, you know, that we can gossip a little about Buddhism, that kind of thing. Um, but I think I've, like, in, you know, in a deeper way to try to answer your question, uh, I, uh, in a similar way to the writing, I've always felt that if it's really affected me in any way, it ought to come through me, it, it not not in, a, in me giving instruction, but just in terms of the, um, uh, the relationship that's possible to build. Um, yeah. Yeah. Could I relate the Buddhist notion of no self to, to Winnicott? Most of you know about Winnicott? British child psychoanalyst who wrote a lot about the experience of um, uh, infants and their mothers through direct observation. So his main concept was of the, the good enough mother who's able to not intrude and not abandon uh, her child, but give enough space that the child feels held in a, in a metaphorical way. But not, but not um, intruded upon, not interfered with. And he had a notion of false self <clears throat> that um, uh, uh, kids who, for whatever reason, um, don't have that experience have to develop a premature kind of self uh, to manage an intrusive or ignoring parental environment. And that's like a caretaker self was another word he used for the false self, which um, is kind of mobilized for survival, but um, uh, it, because it's false and premature, leaves people feeling uh, kind of empty um, and afraid of their more, their inner stirrings. Um, Winnicott was much clearer in uh, describing the false self, and he like uh, had a concept of the true self, but he never really uh, described it very well. It was more kind of like in Buddhism, where y you um, 
uh, to un that emptiness is a, a non-affirming negative. You, you know, it's like any idea that you have about yourself, because it's an idea that you have about yourself, it can't be ultimate. So if you if you see every concept, every every um, every bit of identity as a um, uh, as the concept that it is, then you can understand that you're not that. Um, so that the experience of no self comes out of the ability to not cling to any one thing about who you are. It's similar with Winnicott, the true self is the self that might emerge when you're uh, daydreaming. It, you know, that's the closest he comes to it. That, that when I wrote the book called Going on Being, that, that was a phrase from Winnicott that um, he uses to describe what it's like when you're listening to a symphony or when you're reading a good book or when you're daydreaming or maybe when you're meditating, that you have access to that sense in yourself of continuity, uh, which Buddhism doesn't dispute, uh, the sense of continuity that feels like a wheel, you know, of going on being. Um, but that's always changing a little bit, and yet has comes has the same. Um, uh, uh, you could almost say core, although you can't really say that in Buddhism. Um, I'm conscious of the time, so maybe I'll take one more question. And yeah. Uh, ever since you opened up the class to questions, I've been thinking of what people asked, <laughs> and nothing seems to come to mind. <laughs> so my question is, uh, if I were a patient with you, well, what question would you ask me in this situation? I would uh, stretch myself to the point of my own discomfort uh, to, to not ask you a question. You know, so I would, I can wait, I'm pretty, I can wait for a pretty long time. Um, especially in a one-on-one -on -one situation. When it, when, the, when, when it gets more crowded, I tend to be more active. Um, but um, eventually I might ask you what, what's happening for you. Now. At this moment, and and the other the other the other uh, question I've learned to ask because I had a therapist myself who would, in such moments, ask me in this in a more particular way. I might ask you, um, how are you experiencing me right now? Too long and what? They could be succinct uh -huh. to allow other people to participate. Yeah. Um, a lot of what you said I'm not familiar with. Um, very little resonates with me about what you said. <laughs> that pretty much sounds Yeah, that's good. So that would see that would uh, that would be were that in a therapy session. That, I w that would be like, oh, there's so much there to work with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, because 
Because people aren't often so able to come forward with their critical thoughts and feelings. You know, there's like such a thing of the therapist or the speaker or whatever. And so that would be, I would, if I could handle it, you know, and I would hope that I could, I would, re I would uh, first praise you for uh, your willingness to be truthful and, um, you know, and then try to go from there. But I appreciate what you said at the beginning about how things were going so well that you... <laughs> okay, thank you all. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you, Mark, and thank you all for coming and to all the volunteers. I want to say something about Donna because Mark doesn't receive any recompensation for this night from what you paid. We honor Buddha's tradition of having the teachings be priceless, so we do not put a price on, on them. So there are baskets in the back. Please donate what gives you a good feeling inside yourself. You can write checks to Mark Epstein. Is that okay? Or put cash there. Um, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Does this Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.